Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Uh, we are, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're in week 3 of our four-week Advent series. Uh, and if you're unfamiliar with what that is, uh, literally the word Advent means coming. So within the Christian faith, when we celebrate Advent, we're looking backwards, right? We're looking backwards to the initial coming of Jesus. And so every year we celebrate His birth, His initial coming. But then we're also looking forward to that second coming. So we don't just celebrate things in the past. Those things in the past give us great courage and great heart to celebrate those things that are also coming in the future. And so that's what we do every year, Sulphur Community Church. For the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we celebrate Advent together. And I want to start off our morning with a question for us to consider. What makes a good gift? What makes a good gift? Like some of us in this room, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those. Some of us are like, we're, we're, we, we enjoy the gift giving. Like we look forward to this time of year because we love to bestow gifts on people. We love to honor them, to blow their minds sometimes. We love to give gifts. And some of us really like to receive those gifts, right? We like to get those things. We like to see those things under the tree on Christmas morning. But what makes a good gift? I was thinking about it this week, and I think we have a few characteristics. This idea of gift giving, ever since the first Christmas, ever since the, the birth of Jesus, has been one of the central themes, right? For Jesus, it was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. As we think about kids, there's whatever the, the most recent toy craze is. I know as a kid growing up, there was like, I remember Game Boy. Like every week, as a six-year-old boy, like I really wanted a Game Boy. Then there were some things that I wasn't as interested in, like Beanie Babies. Um, I think my wife may have still had a Beanie Baby collection for a long time. I uh, wasn't into that. I do remember the Tickle Me Elmo. I remember that one because you couldn't find it anywhere. Like y'all, uh, I think the movie's called Jingle All the Way, the Turbo Man doll, right? Like that was real life with Tickle Me Elmo. You couldn't find it anywhere. There was the Tamagotchi. Anybody have one of those? I had one of those too. That's why I don't have any pets today. Because the Tamagotchi was this like electronic pet that you had to feed, you had to clean up after they went to the bathroom, and that thing would go off in the middle of the night, and I'm like, that's it. I'm done. Turn it off. I don't want it anymore. I remember the Nintendo Wii was a big thing. Still a big thing in my house, but... Uh, the Nintendo Wii, when it first came out, like that was one of the Christmas gifts of the year. More recently, uh, for whatever reason, those Hatchimal things. I'm not sure if there is one this year. I haven't heard of one. Praise God. But uh, for kids, there's always that, that thing. For adults, socks. Like for, for, I know as a husband, my wardrobe gets replaced every year. Well, it's a, kind of like a running joke. I just wear the same thing regardless of what she buys me. But wardrobes get replaced. Husbands, we buy our wives elect, uh, exercise equipment. Okay, not so much. But, uh, that was a joke about the Peloton. If you haven't heard about it, go look at it. Uh, but for Christians, while it should not be the primary concern of this time of year for us, the giving of gifts and the receiving of gifts is still a fun aspect that reminds us of who we received that day thousands of years ago. 
And so it's a key component. So what makes a good gift? One of the things I thought of was the cost of the gift, right? That's the initial thing, right? Let's first think of money. Obviously, typically, the more money you spend on a gift, the better quality that gift is. Like, there's a difference between socks and surround sound. The more money you spend, typically, the quality of the gift increases. But it's not always about money. It could be effort, right? Like, for you gift givers, some of y'all are this kind of gift giver. You're going to great effort. You're putting a lot of thought into what it is that you're giving. It's probably something with meaning. It's not just something that's going to, in a couple years, be replaced by some other emerging technology or it's going to break. It's something with sentimental value. So the effort that goes into providing this gift makes it a good gift. But also the sacrifice. What about time and energy? Right? Like there's one thing to go buy a gift, but for somebody to hand make you a gift, right? And that is not a plug for wood intentions. <laughs> but there's something different about someone who sat there and spent the time, whether it was knitting something or building something, than it was for somebody just to go buy it. I think about, my, I had a birthday last week. And for those of you who don't know, I'm a banker. And anybody seen It's a Wonderful Life? This is how I've kind of been. Okay, you know how in It's a Wonderful Life there's a bank examiner that shows up? Well, that bank examiner showed up to do an exam like in one day. In our lives, it's like a month. And just by the nature of my job there, a lot of the discussions, a lot of the questions, a lot of the requests for documentation kind of flows through me. So all week leading up to my birthday, Natalie makes my birthday a big deal. I didn't grow up that way. I'm grateful that she does. But I'm like looking at the dishes in the sink piling up. And that's my job. Like we share duties in the house. My job is the dishes. And so it's Friday and the dishes are still there. My birthday's on Saturday. And I just pretty much resolved, you know what? I'm going to go home. We have a work Christmas party tonight. I know I'm not going to be able to do the dishes when they go to sleep because I make noise and wake them up. So I'm just going to wake up on my birthday whenever I want. But at some point during the day, I'm going to wash the dishes. And then I'll celebrate the birthday. So I, I get home on Friday afternoon to pick up Natalie to go to the Christmas party and open up my lunchbox because I'm cheap. I bring, a, I bring my lunch to work. Uh, and so I open up my lunchbox and I, I'm taking out the dish and it reminds me of the dishes. And as I turn to kind of like, it's a reminder that I have to do them. I hear the dishwasher running. And like this is this shock look on my face. Because understand, it's not just for Natalie. It wasn't just doing the dishes. My wife's also pregnant. So she has a, she's very sensitive to smell right now and texture. And not that our sink was full of like food, but it just over time, dishes stink, right? And she pushed through the nausea. She had to take a break a couple times, but she did the dishes. To me, I told her, like, that's the greatest gift you could have given me for my birthday this year. Because what that showed me is that you cared about me. You loved me. You, you sacrificed your convenience, your time, your energy, the way you felt physically to do something for me. So the cost of the gift, that, that affects whether or not the gift is good or not. What about the benefit to the recipient? Like, 
Do we want that gift? Is it useful for us? Is it beneficial? I was joking this morning because, Blake, I saw a cat underneath your truck just hanging out. If you were to get me a cat for Christmas and all like this whole setup to be able to have a pet cat, it is of absolute zero use to me. None. Like, I don't desire a cat. It's not that I'm against pets. It's just, maybe I'm scarred by the Tamagotchi, but I'd rather spend my money and my effort caring for my children. So I like pets. But while I'm not against pets, I am against cats. Primarily because I'm allergic to them. If I am in a room with a cat, my eyes will start itching and then they'll start swelling. So for me, if you were to give me a cat, that's a bad gift. That is not a good gift because it is of no use to me. I do not desire it. It's one of those gifts where if you invite me to your white elephant party, I will re-gift it and I won't feel bad about it at all. But we have to consider whether or not it's beneficial. There's also the graciousness of the gift. And this speaks not so much to the gift given, but to the recipient. How undeserving of the gift is the recipient of the gift. I mean, think about this. A car dealership walks up to your door. They're not marketing. They have no connection with you. They're not going to have any benefit from this. And they say, here you go, we just want to give you a new car for Christmas. Did you do anything to earn that? Are, you, are they hoping that you go spread the word? Maybe. But they're not even making a public scene about it. They're not taking pictures and posting on their social media about how charitable they are. They're literally just for no good reason, just here you go, graciously giving you a car. The undeserving nature of the recipient makes that gift really good. It's over and above what we, would, we, we deserve. And then the last thing I thought about was the freedom of the act of giving the gift. Where there's no obligation, there's no expectation. Like, let's, let's remove Christmas from gift giving. Let's just think about at any point, at any moment during the year, you just go provide a gift to somebody just to show them how much you care for them, how much you appreciate them. The freedom of the act of giving the gift means that gift is good, Right? As we study the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5 this morning, Paul will communicate to us some of the benefits or the gifts that we receive as Christians who have been justified by faith. Now, Romans is a deep book. I've heard people spend 10 years in this book. Your elders have not stirred up enough courage yet to to preach this book yet, verse by verse. Maybe one day we'll, we'll do it. But it's a challenging book. And the reason is so because it is so weighty. Because when Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome, to a group of people that he does not know, what he finds is a church that is at disunity. Because for a time, the Jewish Christians were sent out of Rome, and then they were invited back in. So when they're invited back in, you have all these different ideas. Well, you don't look like the church that we left. And so now I'm looking at you, and it's like, okay, you have the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. We're at odds on how, how we are to do church together. And so Paul says, let's put all that aside. I'm hearing about what's going on, and I'm grateful for the things because Rome is huge, very influential, 
I'm so excited that there's a church there. Let me remind you of the essential things, the things that matter the most. And he spends the whole letter writing about the gospel. It's the most comprehensive account of the gospel that Paul writes so that it would lead into the effects of the gospel. How then shall we live? So, quick summary, up to chapter 5. Chapters 1 through 2, he gives the bad news. All humanity is in sin. All of us. Jewish, Gentile, does not matter. We have a depraved nature. We are, we are completely evil. And we deserve the eternal wrath and judgment of God in hell. He transitions into chapter 3 and he starts introducing good news. That the just consequences of our sin was placed upon Jesus in his death and that Jesus conquered sin and fully satisfied God's just penalty for sin as evidenced by his resurrection. He talks about how this is done as a result, not as a result of works, but by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, he spends a long portion of scripture saying, we are justified by faith. Let me give you an example. Abraham. Abraham, who was found to be right with God because of the faith he displayed in God's promises. And now in chapter 5, he's transitioning from the explanation of how one is saved, of why one needs to be saved and how one is saved, to the effects of this gracious work of God. So let's read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 together. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul starts off this section of Scripture and he says, therefore, and we've said this so many times from this pulpit, when you see therefore, you ask the question, what is it? Thank you. And so, he's saying that because he's just spent this time. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, now that I've concluded this this argument that that is how man is saved, it is by faith alone and Christ alone, now that we've accomplished that, what are the gifts that we receive from that justification? And the first gift is peace with God. In contrast to where we stand with God in our natural state, we now have peace with Him. In chapter 1, 
we're referred to as the haters of God. In chapter 2, we're described as those who are storing up fury and wrath for ourselves. In Romans 3, he talks about the complete and utter depravity of man and he uses exhaustive speech. No one is good. And just in case you thought you might be the one, he says, no, not one. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. That is where we are when we come into this world because of the fall of Adam. We have inherited this sin nature where we are completely opposed to God. But for those of us who have been justified by faith in Christ, we now are at peace with Him. In the Old Testament, God is often described as one whose bow is bent. For you bow hunters, it's, it's that picture of you pulling it back and you are ready to release. You are dead set on where your target is. That is not a plug for another business that one of our church members is involved with. But you pull back the bow and all it takes is to let go. And that arrow takes off and, and you are looking at destruction on the other end of that. And in the Old Testament, God is described as one whose bow is bent. And at any moment, he could let go. But here, Paul says, through Christ, this unrest is settled. You don't have to worry about that target on your back. In the first week of our Advent series, Trent walked us through Isaiah 9. I've seen a lot of overlap as I've been preparing and I've been hearing my brothers preach. I've seen a lot of overlap pointing to this that we're talking about right now, this peace that we have. And what we saw in that description of spiritual peace were the boots that were meant for warfare. The blood-stained war garments have no purpose anymore, right? The, the prophet Isaiah has this vision from God and that's what he sees is now there is peace. So we don't need those things. The only purpose they serve now is what? Fuel for the fire. Last week, Joey taught us out of Luke 2 when we learned of the shepherd's vision of a multitude of angels praising God with the words, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Here in Romans 5, Paul highlights this peace as one of the gifts we receive through Christ in our justification by faith. It's not peace with Satan. It's not peace with sin. It's not peace with our flesh. And it's not peace in this world. See, with these things, we still wage war. One of the things we, we talked about with our youth uh, about a month and a half, two months ago, we were looking at the, the church, the, the, the doctrine of the church, and we have been given the authority to wage war, spiritual war, on this earth. We have been commissioned to go do so. And so how do we do that? That's when we bring truth where there are lies. That's where we bring light where there is darkness, because that is not just a smooth process. There is friction that occurs there. There is spiritual war that we have been commissioned to go usher into this world. Bring truth. Bring light. Bring the gospel. 
when Paul is talking about peace here, he's not saying that our lives are, are going to be easy. We're just on the right side of that battle now. Because see, now we have peace with God. And yes, one day He will bring peace on earth as it is in heaven. But until that day, we are working towards that end. Before we go to our second gift, I want, I want to ask, do you feel at peace with God? Do you feel that? Or do you feel like His bow is bent? And His arrow of destruction is aimed directly at you? if you have trusted in Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross and you feel that way, you need to ask, your question, ask the question why. Is it because your view of Christ and his atoning work is too low? Are you bringing in some concept of a works-based salvation like you have to do something to earn his love, to earn his affection, to satisfy his judgment so that he might remove that that arrow, that aim from you? Do you have an improper understanding of how you are justified before God, that it is by faith alone and Christ alone, not works? Or are you mistaking peace with God for peace on earth? See, that can be very frustrating if that's what you think. If you laid down your yes to Jesus, if you said, I surrender my life to following you no matter the cost, but you thought that that cost was going to be minimal, and that you would live the rest of your life in complete peace on this earth, I can see why you might feel like you're not at peace with God right now. If that's the expectation you have. But that's not what we see here. What we see here is peace with God. There's the spiritual rest we have. We sang that this morning too, right? That we would find our rest in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Not in the things of this world. We receive peace with God. The second gift is we have a standing in His grace. Look at Romans chapter 5 verse 2. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Throughout Scripture we see different types of God's grace. Grace is classically defined as unmerited or undeserved favor. The way I've taught our, our youth, it's as though you receive something that you did not deserve, right? That's why I use that picture of the car dealership coming to your door and giving you a car. You didn't do anything to earn it, yet you received something. That is grace. The first type of grace is common grace. The way I've kind of described this is the mere fact that you're here today, that, that mankind woke up this morning with breath in their lungs, that's common grace. Common grace is the fact that the rain falls on the head of the believer and the unbeliever. Common grace is the kind of grace that God gives to all of mankind. Special grace, or saving grace, is grace given by God to undeserving man in which he redeems man. He rescues them from the bondage of their sin. He gives them the faith that they need to respond to the gospel. He sanctifies them. He produces in them righteousness and holiness and ultimately will glorify them, presenting them as spotless, perfect, 
the way we were created to be. In Romans 5.2, Paul is referring to saving grace. He says, through our faith in Christ, we Christians have not only received peace with God, but also saving grace in which we stand. The mention of this standing in grace communicates that we're not only saved in the past by God's grace, but that we are still being saved by God's grace. We are continuously being held in our salvation because of His grace and His grace alone. And just in case that wasn't clear, what I'm trying to say is, for so many of us, we know, we understand that, yes, I was, I was lost, I was gone, and God pursued me, and He saved me by His grace, and we forget that as we're living our lives, Christian lives, and we think that now it's up to us. Now it's completely dependent upon our actions, that we must now prove ourselves worthy of that. And that's not what the Gospel says. The gospel says that it was grace from the beginning and it will be grace all the way to the end. It is only by His grace that we are saved. And so because of Jesus Christ, as we have responded in faith to Him, we have a standing today in that grace. The mention of this constant standing also eliminates fear of condemnation. As God keeps us in His grace, we have access to Him. Through His Son, Jesus, we can boldly approach Him knowing that we will not face judgment because Christ has already taken that upon Himself. It eliminates a, a score sheet mentality with God or a mentality that our, our good must outweigh our bad. It eliminates the feelings that we must prove ourselves worthy of His love because God's grace is not dependent upon our actions and our affections towards Him. God's grace is dependent upon His actions for us and His affections toward us. It's liberating. When we know and believe that we are standing in the grace of God. It allows us to spend more of our time praising God and less time hating ourselves. It gives us the same spirit that those angelic hosts had when they responded with glory to God in the highest. That's what this produces in us. Through Christ, we have received peace with God and a standing in His grace. And the last gift we'll look at this morning is unfailing hope. Going back to verse 2, because this, this comes up in the second half of the verse, and we'll go all the way through verse 5. Through Him... We have also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Through Christ, we receive hope. Now, we use the word hope in a multitude of ways in our daily lives. We use it to express desire for something. It's like a verb. It's active. Like we hope that our team will win the game or we hope that we won't hit any traffic on the way. 
It's also used as a noun. We, we also use the, the hope. Is, is, it's the actual thing we desire. So we may say our hope is for our team to win the game or our hope is that we'll have a smooth trip. And then we also use it as the basis for thinking that the, our desire will come to pass. Such as Joe Burrow is our only hope that we'll win the game something that we desire to happen, but we've identified something as the aspect, the basis upon which we hope that it will. Ordinarily, when we use the word hope, we are also expressing a sense of uncertainty, aren't we? There's some uncertainty there. That is why for those things that we earnestly desire, what are we told to do? Don't get your hopes up. Why? Why wouldn't we want to get our hopes up? Because there's uncertainty in those things. And we might be disappointed. That's not what Paul is talking about. Because this hope is based on the glory of God. We hope in the glory of God. And it is unfailing. It will not disappoint us. This gift of hope, Paul said, was a reason for rejoicing. Since we have been justified by our faith in Christ, we have reason to rejoice and praise God because now we have a certain hope ahead of us. And this is the anticipation of Advent, right? It's a season of anticipation because Advent is looking back and celebrating what has already occurred and looking forward with an assuredness, a certain hope that one day Jesus will come again. It's that second Advent that we have hope in. The only uncertainty we have is a matter of when, not if, it will occur. And Paul does this thing that's interesting because he says more than that. So Paul, of all people, certainly isn't bypassing all the things in this life and just straight saying, okay, well, forget the rest of this life. We're only focusing on the hope ahead. So Paul goes on and he gives almost like a commentary to what he has just said. And he says, okay, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Notice he says we rejoice in our sufferings, not because of our sufferings. Like he's not a masochist. He doesn't enjoy all of the things that Paul went through. If you're familiar with Paul's ministry, you know he was stoned. He's been shipwrecked. And and I'm not going to read the text, but he gives a full description of everything that he went through. And none of it is desirable. But he says, we rejoice not because of the suffering, but because of what they produce. We know where it's headed. My brother Joshua Blunt, this morning, while I was uh, preparing, going over my notes, I took a step outside and I saw that his car, his car was right in front of our house. The reason that is is because he runs, and our neighborhood is a pretty good neighbor to run, neighborhood to run in. I remember the first time that I ran with Joshua Blunt a few years ago. We would run two minutes and take a break. Two minutes and take a break. And he doesn't mind me sharing this. He would tell you the same thing. I'm not, he was out of shape. And so I would run with him and I'd take a break. At that point, I could have I kept going. Today, no way. Like, number one, I have a knee problem, but I can't run with Joshua Blunt. You want to know why? Because to him, six miles is casual. 
He's preparing for a half marathon. Like this for him is nothing. He has tested his body to the point now that he has greater endurance. About two years ago, I started working out with, with a guy, but at that point, it was like the first workout was like seven guys, and then the second workout was like three, and then it's been two for like two years. Um, and I, I just, the first workout, like all of us are pretty much on the same level. We're, we're active, but it's not like we've been like killing it. We all, we're, we're in our 30s. We want to try to get in shape a little bit. And so we show up, and my friend, he's crazy. He, it's not CrossFit. I know we have some CrossFitters here. It wasn't CrossFit, but it was like a, like a cheaper version of CrossFit. Um, it's like basically throw some things in the back of a truck, bring it out to the track at Sulphur High School, unload it, and we're just going to do some things. So we had we had like a we had kettlebells. He actually brought out a barbell with 45 pound plates. We had the track, of course, so we could do some um, some sprinting. Um, all these things, and we uh, with the group we had, I, I observed. Um, I did participate, but I observed while I was participating, and I noticed that there was a difference in the level of endurance that some of us had, even though we were all coming in basically on the same level. And the reason that was, I noticed there, there were guys who played sports in high school. They had a certain level of endurance. Then there was me. I played Division three football. It's like not good enough to be LSU, not good enough to be at McNeese, not good enough to be at Division two. just good enough to get out of high school and play. No, okay. But, um... Um, I had a different level of endurance they had. Now, my buddy, he did Division One through the Javelin at the University of Georgia and was he, was, he, he won the national championship. He went on to, to compete for a while, try to, he tried to qualify for the Olympics. Our levels of endurance, even though we were all coming in at the same plane, were different because we had already tested our bodies in a different way. It took a little bit more in Division Three football than it did in high school. For my buddy, it took a lot more than it would for me to compete at the Division Three level for him to win a national championship throwing the javelin. There was another guy that was there. He's a Marine. This guy should not have been there that morning. He, he's got herniated disc in his back. He's coming off of a 12-hour shift from a plant and he rolls up drinking a Red Bull and is like, let's go, guys. And he pushed himself way farther than any of us could. Because our suffering produced endurance. Each one of us had already gone through different levels of suffering. So we were able to endure much greater things. We don't rejoice because of the suffering, but we rejoice in them because we know where it's going. Endurance produces character. When we go through those trials, when we go through those tests of our faith and we endure, when we come out on the other side of them, we have a more authentic faith. Not a blind faith that just says, I'm going to step out off this cliff and hope that something's going to hold me up. But it's assuredness, right? It's that certainty like, I've already gone through so much that I have confidence as I move forward. My faith is solid. Endurance produces character. And it is this character, this proven faith in the providence 
and the sovereignty of God in His faithful love and care for us that produces an unfailing hope. See how he circles all the way back to hope. That's why he said, wait, more than that, I don't want you to just focus on the hope. I think you need to understand what it takes to get there. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces an unfailing hope that Paul says will not put us to shame. It is unlike the hope of this world. Are you suffering right now? It's a good implication. Are are you in the midst of suffering right now? As a believer, I want you to know you are justified by faith and that God is still sovereign in the middle of your suffering. So rejoice, not because of it. It's not fun. It's not painless. But rejoice in it. Because you will come out on the other side of it and you will have a stronger faith in God because of it. Now that we've considered the gifts, let's transition a little bit and let's look at the means through which we receive these gifts. Each year when we get to this season of Advent, inevitably, one of our preachers are going to bring this concept up because it is inescapable as we celebrate Advent, the coming of Jesus. While we celebrate His birth, we also celebrate Good Friday. We celebrate His death. Because we know With the joy of the coming of Christ, there's the joy of knowing that He was born among men so that He might die for them. This is the major theme in verses 6 through 11. The means through which we receive these things is through the death of Jesus Christ. I want you to follow along as I read verses 6 through 11 again. And I want you to pay special attention the frequency in which Paul mentions the death, or ideas of death, of Jesus. Starting in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul said, while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When we had no power, no ability to fix our situation, at the right time, at the divinely appointed time that God fixed before the foundation of the world, His Son came and died. And then Paul highlights the difference between this type of sacrifice versus the sacrificial love displayed by man, right? He says... Scarcely will one die for a righteous religious person. Like somebody that's, oh, they're doing the right things. Does that mean we're just going to lay down our life for them? Scarcely will that happen. Though for a good guy, so, and 
the, what he's doing there, he's, he's like, you know this man's good. A righteous person is someone like, you can see righteousness in their lives, but a good guy, man, that's a good old boy. That's my, I, I might do it for him. But God, while we were still sinners, died for us. There's no benefit at that point in that relationship. He's the initiator of that loving relationship. This was God's love on display. He was the one who pursued us. He didn't wait for us to love Him. Instead, it was while we were still bound in our rebellion, while our hearts were still hardened towards Him, while we were still sinners actively opposing Him, He died for us. And since the shedding of His blood led to our justification, which means we have been made right with God, we have been released from the wrath that we have deserved. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How? By the death of His Son. It's repeated over and over there. All those things that we saw, the gifts that come to us through our justification by faith and the death of Jesus Christ alone, they come because of His death. So if His death brought about reconciliation, how much more will we be restored to God by His life, by His resurrection? And this again leads Paul to respond with rejoicing. As we finish, let's revisit those characteristics of good gifts. The first one was cost, right? Let's think about the gifts that we have received. At what cost did they come? There's no money in this world that could buy this. The effort and the thoughtfulness of these gifts the way that God orchestrated all of these things surpasses any romantic idea that any of us could ever have to give a meaningful gift to someone else. There is literally no greater sacrifice than the one that accomplished these gifts. No greater love is this than one laid down his life for another. What about the benefit to the recipient? Can you imagine what our lives would look like without those gifts? Without knowing that we are at peace with God? Without having assurance that we are still standing in the grace of God today? Can you imagine the uncertainty that we would have in our lives without a future hope? We have received peace. We have received confidence. We have received assurance. We have received love, joy, satisfaction. And sometimes we trade those things for meaningless things, but they're still there. He's still provided them to us. The third one was the graciousness of the gift, right? And it had not so much to do with the gift, but the, the recipient of the gift. How undeserving are we to receive these gifts? You read the words that Paul used, right? While we were still weak while we were still sinners, while we were enemies. And you see a progression there, right? Like there's this idea of us being weak and being helpless. We're not able to do anything. But it's not like we're doing anything wrong necessarily. We just don't have the means to, to fix our situation. And then you have while we're still sinners. So we're, we're, we're hearing you, but we're going to go do our own thing. So we are rejecting you. And then there's the progression of, okay, yeah, you're not just weak. You're not just sinners. You're enemies. You are actively working against God. You're saying, 
no, I hear you, and I am going to go do my own thing, but I'm going to attack everything that you have said. I challenge you. I am my own God. It was while we were still those things that we received these gifts, that Jesus died for us. There's no greater grace than that. And then there's the freedom of the act of gift-giving. John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. God was under no obligation to save us. With the exception of submitting to His Father, Jesus had no obligation to us. It wasn't forced upon Him, but in His grace, He laid down His life for us. That's what makes these gifts so great. These are good gifts. It came at a great cost. Infinite benefit. Eternal benefit to us. So much grace extended. We are completely undeserving of these gifts. And He was under no obligation to provide them to us. But, if we left here this morning rejoicing in the benefits afforded to us by Jesus as our greatest treasure... We wouldn't be far off the point, but we would miss it altogether. Because as cliche as this may be, Jesus Himself is the greatest gift. How do we receive all these things? Notice the language of Paul. Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ Himself is the greater gift. To quote one of my favorite Christmas movies, it's funny. It's not the the one-year membership to the Jelly of the Month Club. But Jesus Christ is the gift that keeps on giving all year long. So for this Christmas and every Christmas, we celebrate the gift of Jesus Christ. As we spend our money, as we as we expend our energy trying to express love to our friends, trying to hopefully portray the gospel and the the gift-giving to our families. Let us do so in honor of the ultimate gift, the highest gift that could ever be given and that we have received, and that's Jesus Christ. I want to close with these last words. I thought about this last week as Joey was finishing up and he got to that that text in Luke 2, 13 through 14. And it reads like this. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I want to be upfront and honest and it's because I care and I love you. If you have not trusted 
If you have not responded in faith to the call of the gospel of the good news that Jesus died for your sins and trusted in that for yourself, you have no peace with God. Today where you sit, you are outside of His grace. You have no hope. The only thing certain is that there will one day be a coming judgment and it will not bode well for you on that day. It is only with those that He is pleased with. And so we, we must ask ourselves the question, well, who is God pleased with? We get the answer in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. It is only those who have faith. Faith in Christ, believing in Jesus as the Son of God and trusting that He died from your sins, turning away from your sins to follow Jesus the rest of your lives. For those of you who have been baptized here, you participate with baptism. We always throw this at the very end, no matter what Without that, it is impossible to please Him. And this Christmas, you have nothing worth rejoicing over. And that breaks my heart. That right now, some of us in this room don't have a hope. We're not at peace with God. I asked the question earlier to the believers, can you imagine what that would be like and you can respond with, now I, now I do. Now I know what that feels like. I pray that God opens that up to you so you can experience what that feels like just for a second. Because if He does, you're going to come crying out to Him. Because you're going to see where you are. See, that's, that's where we are naturally. We, our hearts are hardened towards Him. They're hard. So every time we get up and we preach the gospel, yes, I want to reassure my brothers and sisters in Christ, but I also pray that God would soften your heart, that you would not resist it, that you would not suppress the truth, as we see in Romans chapter 1, that you respond in faith, because it is only in faith that you can please Him. You see, if you don't get the things on your Christmas wish list this year, you might be a little bummed. You might be a little disappointed. But if you miss out on these gifts, it's going to be more sincere than that. Would you trust in Christ today and surrender your life to follow Him? For you believers, let us not fit the description of Romans chapter 1 where we exchange the the glory of the immortal God for things resembling mortal man and birds and creeping things. Let us not get caught up in the things that are underneath the tree. But let us treasure Jesus above all.